This episode was made possible by the generous support of listeners like you. For more information, please visit patreon.com slash author Chris Luster. I strive to make this podcast a safe and inclusive place for my listeners. If I've missed any content warnings, please let me know. Content warnings for this episode include strong language and mature themes. You're listening to The Raven and the Writing Desk, the weekly podcast about the writings of Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. This is episode 291. Hello, everyone. Welcome to The Raven and the Writing Desk. I am Chris Lester, the creator and head author of the Metamore City Story Universe. You can learn more about me and my work at chrislester.org and metamorecity.com. Each week, I bring you a piece of my fiction, available in audio for the first time anywhere. I'll also tell you what's new in my life as a writing professional. More on that later in the show. For now, let's get to this week's story. Today I'm bringing you Chapter 32 in my Metamore City novel, Making the Cut. If you're new to the show, don't start here. Go back to episode 259 to hear this story from the beginning. The following recap will contain spoilers. In last week's episode, Brian had successfully infiltrated Viscount Security with his team of accomplices. He snuck into an office and logged into the network, where he encountered a sentient security program called a Spectre. After evading its initial attack, he distracted the Spectre with a barrage of worms and viruses— then took advantage of the chaos to give himself administrator access. After erasing himself from the security logs, he climbed up into the drop ceiling and waited for nightfall. Meanwhile, across town, Danny called Jared as she was leaving work. He has something special planned for their date tonight, but he won't tell her what it is, except that he wants her to wear jeans and sturdy shoes. While they were on the phone, a wave of vertigo ran through Danny. The doctor had warned her to expect this. It means that the androgyne curse is taking hold of her body. Danny Sharabi is here for good. This is the moment that Rebecca has been waiting for. Now that the curse has taken effect, Danny's soul should be split in two, dividing her female persona from the male Daniel persona. Now they have a chance to reach Daniel with the ritual spell that Artax sold them. If it works, it will strengthen the Daniel soul's influence over his and Danny's shared brain and body, giving him the chance to escape from Jared's control. Rebecca and Sasha performed the ritual, following the instructions the wizard gave them. The spell did something, but whether it did what they wanted remains to be seen. Making the Cut, a novel of Metamore City, written and read by Chris Lester. Chapter 32 So, um, how you doing over there? Fiona turned her impassive green eyes on Callie. 
Fine. You? Callie looked down at the nearly five hundred meters of open air below her. Then she looked back up at her climbing harness and the slender cable attached to the railing ten meters above her. Oh, you know, she said, forcing herself to smile. Just hanging around. The other woman's eyes narrowed slightly, and she looked away, saying nothing. Callie sighed. Everyone's a critic, she muttered. Normally, Callie might not have bothered trying to get a reaction out of Fiona, but this op was making her nervous. She wasn't particularly afraid of heights, but there was something intimidating about hanging suspended inside one of the tower's support columns. The shaft ran from the base of the building all the way to its summit, a hollow tube twenty meters across and over six hundred meters tall. Meter-thick walls of steel and spell-hardened concrete surrounded them on all sides, the surface far too smooth to climb without repelling equipment. Sixteen stories below them lay the landing for Viscount's emergency staircase, which spiraled down the inside of the column to the exit on the third skyway level. That staircase would have been the obvious way to reach Viscount's escape hatches, but because it was obvious, it was also trapped, warded, and monitored via camera. Brian had told them that he couldn't deal with all of the nasty little surprises down there while also looping the camera feeds and keeping the alarms from tripping, so they had decided to bypass the issue entirely by coming at the landing from above. Viscount's designers had apparently never seriously considered the possibility that someone might try to climb down from the fourth skyway to reach an escape hatch that had no visible handles, hinges, or weak spots. Callie looked down again and fought off a wave of vertigo. There's probably a damned good reason for that, she told herself wryly. This has got to be the second craziest thing you've ever done. She turned back to Fiona. Any word from Brian yet? Negative. The woman's eyes grew distant for a minute, as if she were trying to do a difficult math problem in her head. Elder Bakhtivar reports that her espers see no sign of the door opening yet. Got it. Kelly hung there for another minute, thinking. She frowned as something occurred to her. Hey, how come Sasha and Rebecca aren't in on this? I thought they were going to be our eyes and ears for this op. Fiona's mouth pressed into a thin line. Change of plans. They were needed elsewhere. Callie raised an eyebrow. We're trying to pull off the biggest heist in the last five years against the biggest organized crime outfit on the planet. What's more important than that? Fiona looked away. The answer to that, apparently, is subject to interpretation. Callie's communicator beeped once, and Fiona's demeanor became instantly calm and detached. It is time, she said. Disengaging the locks on their climbing cables, Fiona and Callie rappelled down the side of the wall toward the landing. Callie felt a thrill of adrenaline coursing through her. Hanging in one place wasn't her idea of a good time, but this was something she never got tired of. As the hatch came into view below, Callie saw Brian peeking his head out and looking up at them. The hallway beyond the hatch was as dark as the shaft itself, 
but Callie's supernaturally enhanced night vision allowed her to spot him without any trouble. He gave them a quick grin as they touched down and unhooked themselves from their climbing gear. Without a word, they followed him inside and headed for the vault. Danny winced and put a hand to her head as a twinge of pain ran through her. She pressed her fingertips into her temples and rubbed in small circles, trying to dispel the feeling. Jared glanced over at her from across the skimmer. You okay, hon? he asked. She grunted noncommittally. I've been getting this headache off and on for the last hour or so. Probably something to do with the curse finally taking hold. His hand found hers and clasped it. Should we go home? She shook her head and forced herself to smile. No way. I want to see what this big surprise is that you're planning. I took a painkiller before we left, so I should be fine in a few minutes. Danny could feel Jared take reassurance at her words, and he smiled and turned his eyes back to the freeway. She raised an eyebrow when he took the exit that led down to the square. The only place down there that would be worth going to at this hour would be the Citadel itself. I hope we're not planning a return trip to the Panoramic, because I am severely underdressed. Jared grinned. I don't know if underdressed is the right word. That dress you wore last time showed off a whole lot more than what you're wearing now. Danny mock-punched his shoulder. You know what I mean, Pixiewit. I do, he agreed. Don't worry, I wouldn't do that to you. I have something else in mind. They arrived at street level and merged onto the eight-lane divided road that led toward the citadel. The massive north face of the arcology rose up in front of them, swallowing the sky, and the entrance looked like a tunnel into the side of a mountain. They passed out of the darkness of the street and entered a world where night never fell. Though it looked as quiet and forbidding as a mountain from without, inside the citadel was a beehive of activity. The transit tunnels were congested with one and two passenger electric vehicles, most of them using wheels instead of lift turbines. Skimmers were too large to be permitted in most of the citadel's passages, so they followed the signs to one of the twenty parking garages that filled the basement levels of the structure. After parking, Jared opened the trunk and pulled out a large tote bag, about three decimeters wide and nine decimeters long. He slung it over his shoulder, then shut and locked the skimmer. Danny eyed the bag with curiosity as they headed for the lift that would take them back to ground level. Okay, I'll bite. What is this, some kind of sports adventure date? Jared just gave her a mischievous look, as if to say, wouldn't you like to know? and kept on walking. The pedestrian areas at ground level were just as busy as the transit tunnels had been. A network of brightly lit passageways connected high, domed chambers the size of skyball stadiums, all of them teeming with the Friday night crowds. Tiered walkways lined with shops ran around the outside walls of the chambers, rising four or five levels over open plazas decorated with fountains and well-tended gardens. Bands of street musicians performed wherever they could mark out the space to do so, and here and there impromptu dance parties took shape as the shoppers were drawn in by the music. 
A grin had spread across Danny's face before she even realized it. She scanned the crowds around her and saw members of every race and every sentient species, humans and lutons and sylvan and two dozen different kinds of theriomorphs, all rubbing shoulders as they moved to the music of a dozen different cultures. It was the melting pot of Metamore City on a micro-scale, a tapestry of sentient life, where differences of bloodline and ethnicity were swallowed up in a larger concept of we. For tonight, at least, those differences could be forgotten. The Citadel was alive, both figuratively and literally, and in the shelter of Majestrix Kaya, her citizens were invited to share in the joy and delight that she felt for each and every one of them. Jared and Danny walked through three of the domed chambers before coming to a main junction, where twenty lifts and two internal monorail lines provided access to distant parts of the citadel. They boarded an express lift, and Jared pushed the button for a floor that was nearly at the summit of the central spire. Danny looked at the button, then back down at Jared's tote bag. She smiled. She had a pretty good idea of where they were going now. Her suspicions were confirmed a minute later. They reached their stop, the doors opened, and Jared led the way to a moving slidewalk labeled To Overlook Park. It took nearly two minutes to traverse the distance, even on the slidewalk, but then the walls opened up around them, and they stepped out into a world of green. Cobblestone paths wound through grassy hills, groves of trees, and gardens filled with flowers from all across the empire. Birds and butterflies flitted here and there, and the sounds of birdsong filled the air. Hidden somewhere among the trees, Danny knew, there was even a large pond stocked with prize-winning koi, a gift from the emperor of Yamato. And beyond it all were the lights of Metamore City itself, visible through the massive, transparent dome that was the Citadel's most distinctive feature. A gentle wind blew from somewhere, and Danny closed her eyes and breathed in the smell of pine trees and flower blossoms. I don't get up here often enough, she thought. Overlook Park was as close to wilderness as you could find in Metamore City. Even Glen Avery, with its towering trees and elven architecture, was ultimately a residential community. If you wanted to get lost in nature without straying too far from home, Overlook Park was without equal. Jared brushed her hair aside and placed a gentle kiss on the back of her neck. We're almost there, he said. She turned and looked at him, running a loving hand down the side of his face. Lead the way, she said. They were not the only couple in the park that night, but there was nothing like the crowds they had seen at ground level. Friday night was a night to party for most of Metamore's young professional class. Like Jared and Danny, those who came to the park at this hour were looking for a little privacy. It was easy enough to find. Jared led her through a dense grove of woods to a secluded spot near the edge of the dome. The clearing looked out on the city below, and was surrounded by trees on its other three sides. For all intents and purposes, they were completely alone. Look at that view, Danny breathed, staring out at five layers of lights that surrounded the square. It was a surreal feeling, 
standing here in the middle of a forest and looking out at the largest city in the world. They were more than a kilometer above the highest level of skyways, and from up here the skimmers looked like fireflies. Makes you wonder if this is how the gods felt when they used to look down on us from the nine heavens. Jared opened the tote bag and removed a rolled-up blanket, which he spread out on the grass. To Danny's surprise, he then also pulled out a bottle of wine, two glasses, and a basket containing cheese, fruit, crackers, and cold cuts. The bag didn't look nearly large enough to hold everything he'd had inside it. She suddenly noticed the logo on the side of the bag and laughed. You have a cornucopia bag? He shrugged modestly. Just a small one. The internal capacity is about two cubic meters. Danny whistled. Still pretty arc, though. Reaching inside the enchanted bag, Jared pulled out one more item. A portable stereo system, about three decimeters wide and two decimeters high. He set it on the grass beside the blanket and queued up a playlist. When the music began, Danny recognized the singer's voice. It was the same local band they had heard playing at the cellar a few weeks ago, on the first night Jared took her to his apartment. On the first night they had made love. Danny sat down beside him on the blanket and kissed him, slowly and tenderly. When they parted, he poured a glass of wine for each of them. They fed each other morsels of food from Jared's picnic basket, laughing and talking in hushed tones, while the music from the player mixed with the sounds of birdsong. On impulse, Danny took some wine into her mouth and then kissed Jared, letting her mouth become a chalice for him to drink from. Some of the wine trickled out of the corner of his mouth, running over his jaw and down the side of his neck. Danny giggled and licked it off of him before finding his lips once more. When the picnic basket was mostly empty, they sat back and cuddled up together, looking out at the city below. Jared's hand found Danny's, and she opened up a mind link between them, letting her happiness and contentment radiate through their connection. So, he asked, what do you think of our little mystery date? She took a sip of wine, then leaned over to rest her head against his chest. She thought about her headache and realized it was gone, at least for the time being. She closed her eyes and smiled. It's perfect, she said. So, what do you think? Brian asked. The runner, Callie Linder, looked up at the vault and chewed her lip thoughtfully. Always did love a challenge, she murmured. Physically, it resembled the top-of-the-line bank vault that one might see in any major city. The two-meter-high door sported a large, wheel-shaped handle in the center. Brian was familiar with the design, and he knew that the door was held in place by a solid wedge that ran along its full length from top to bottom. There were no bolts to slide tools between, no weak points that could be compromised. Any attempt to force the door open would just tighten it further. Above the wheel were two combination dials, which could only be used after the proper authorization card had been entered in the electronic reader that stood to the right of the door. It was arguably the best security that mundane technology could produce, but that wasn't what worried Brian. 
he was far more concerned about the thin, glowing red lines that surrounded the vault door, weaving their way across the floor, walls, and ceiling in intricate patterns. Moments ago, Callie had tossed some sort of fine silvery powder into the air, and it had revealed the wards that stood between them and the vault's physical defenses. Brian didn't know much about reading Spellweave, but what he saw looked decidedly unfriendly. All right, he said. Should we give you some space? Callie smirked. You mean, will this kill us all if I screw up? The thought had crossed my mind, yes. She peered more closely at the lines of magic. It doesn't look like it. I see an alarm spell, a strength-sapping curse, and a trigger for a binding spell. It looks like it's designed to capture intruders alive and keep them helpless until the vamps arrive to deal with them. Fiona put her hands on her hips. A killing curse would have been preferable. Brian suppressed a shudder, but he had to agree with Fiona. What's the range if it goes off? About ten meters from the look of it, Callie said. Brian caught Fiona's eye, and she nodded fractionally. We'll wait in the hall, he said. They stepped out of the vault's antechamber and went fifteen meters down the hallway, just to be on the safe side. Brian took a seat in the chair at a nearby cubicle while Fiona took up a watchful pose in the direction of the main entrance. He sent out a tendril of thought in her direction, trying to open up a mind link, but her shields were up, and she gave no sign that she had heard him. He tried using speech instead. Elder Bakhtavar asked for permission to talk to you yesterday. Did she find you? Fiona didn't look at him, but after a moment she gave a sharp nod. Did she say anything useful? Another pause, longer this time. Just when Brian thought that she might never answer, Fiona spoke. She said that there is a deep pain inside of me, she said, her voice hoarse but steady. Some injury that I have hidden from the world, yet it continues to color my judgment. Brian nodded thoughtfully. Is she right? Fiona lowered her head, though her back remained rigid. I do not know. I have been thinking back on my life, trying to recall some moment of trauma that might have had the effect she describes. She hesitated, then added, I have come to the realization that I do not remember much of my childhood before joining the Collective. This is... unsettling. Brian came up behind her and put his hands on her shoulders. She tensed for a moment, but then relaxed against him. He slid his arms around her waist and rested his head against hers, saying nothing. "'I am sorry that I hurt Rebecca,' she said, her voice barely above a whisper. "'I know. It was never my intention to bring discord into our family.' He planted a soft kiss on her cheek. I know. She covered his hands with hers and opened a tiny thread of telepathic contact between them. She could not give voice to the fear inside her, but for an instant she lowered her defenses enough that Brian could see the image she held in her mind. A vast ocean, contained by walls of rock and iron, 
but so deep that no light could reach the bottom. Though the water's surface was calm, he could sense the roiling currents underneath. I do not know what I will find if I go down there, she said. The pressure, the cold, and the darkness. It is possible that I would not return. You will return, he promised her. We won't make you face this alone. She shook her head slightly. In the end, we all face the mirror alone. Am I interrupting anything? Brian and Fiona turned to see Callie watching them, her fingertips glowing faintly in the dim light. Sorry, but I managed to hex down the wards, and I'm not sure how long it's going to last. Whatever you're going to do, you better do it quick. They followed her back inside the antechamber, where Callie had drawn out a ritual spell circle that had suppressed the vault's magical defenses. Brian stepped carefully around it and went over to the electronic card reader. As he had hoped, the phony administrator-level access he had created for himself earlier was recognized by the vault, and a green light illuminated above the card slot. "'You're up, Fee,' he said quietly. Fiona nodded and stepped over to one of the two combination dials. Brian gestured for Callie to leave the room, and he walked out after her. Callie looked back over her shoulder at Fiona, who was carefully turning the combination dial while pressing her ear against the vault door. The tumblers in that thing are made of polyamide thermoplastic, she told Brian. They're too quiet to hear when they click into position. Not for Fiona, Brian said. She channels her psi power into her ears and fingertips to enhance their sensitivity. It'll take some time, but she can crack it. But not if you stand there talking about it, Fiona said, her voice flat. Brian smiled at her in apology and led Callie well out of earshot. They stopped just inside the main entrance, and Callie perched on a desk to wait. How long do you think it'll take her? she asked. Brian shrugged. It'll take what it takes. We've got plenty of time. The ward shouldn't reactivate as long as the vault thinks an authorized user is accessing it, right? In theory. Let's just hope there isn't some sort of time limit on how long you're allowed to access it. Brian sat down to wait again, but after a few minutes he got up and started pacing. Fiona's confession gnawed at the back of his mind, dragging his attention away from the mission. He regretted even bringing it up and wished that he had a little more of Fiona's ability to distance herself from her emotions. So what's up with you and Fiona? Callie, apparently, was disturbingly perceptive for a mundane. What do you mean? Brian asked. The runner tucked her knees up against her chest and wrapped her arms around her legs. Look, you don't gotta tell me if you don't want to. Client privilege and all that. But I've been trying to figure out how all of you are connected since this run started, and it's driving me nuts. At first, I figured you and Becca were married, what with her having the kid on the way. Fiona and Sasha obviously share the apartment with you, and given that there's only two bedrooms, I figure they're married too, or at least lovers. But now Sasha and Bex are suddenly off the mission, Fiona's all tense about it, and I walk out and find you and her having a moment together. She spread her arms. Now, I don't normally butt in on people's personal lives, especially if they're clients, 
But if I've gotten myself mixed up in some kind of primetime romantic drama that's about to go Nova around me, I'd like to have a little advance warning. Brian lowered his head and turned away, hiding a private smile. Callie had seen more of the breeding cell than any mundane had in years, and she still hadn't grasped the reality of it. Maybe she wasn't as perceptive as he'd thought, though he supposed he couldn't blame her. Don't worry. There's nothing adulterous about what Fiona and I share. We're not just flatmates. We're all part of the same cell. Each of us belongs to the others, and nothing happens without all of us knowing about it and agreeing to it. She nodded slowly. He could tell that she wasn't quite sure that she grasped the whole situation, but she was willing to go with it for the time being. Okay, so if you're not cheating with each other, what's got everybody so uptight? Brian sighed. Fee and Becca had an argument yesterday. We're working through it, but it did bring up some things that Fee hadn't realized about herself. We're all willing to help her, but she's never really taken well to needing help. Hence the tension. With her powers, I can see why, Callie said. I'll bet she doesn't run into much that she can't handle. Not much, no, Brian agreed. Only the things inside herself. At the end of the hallway, Fiona came out of the anteroom and beckoned to them. They quickly closed the distance, and as they entered, they found her spinning the wheel on the vault door. The wedge lock disengaged, and she pulled the door open. Beyond the meter-thick barrier of concrete and steel, the interior of the vault was dark and forbidding. Fiona looked around inside. I don't see a light switch, she said, turning to look at them. Hand me a... No sooner had she turned her back on the vault than a dark shape came rushing out and tackled her to the floor. And that's the end of chapter 32. Come back next time when Jared poses a question to Danny and the mission to Viscount runs into complications. Michael Chabon said, All novels are sequels. Influence is bliss. So follow me to my next writing adventure. It's time for the weekly writing report. This update covers the week of June 26th to July 2nd. I wrote 3,584 words this week, over the course of seven hours, for an average writing speed of 512 words per hour. As of Friday night, I've gone 15 days without breaking my chain. Looking back at the month of June, I wrote a total of 11,231 words in 16 days, averaging 702 words per day. That ranks 53rd out of 74 months since I started this podcast. I spent 22 hours writing in June, Compared to May, my word count increased by 127%, and my writing time increased by 96%. This week, I finished my edits on the Honor Bound trilogy. The biggest changes were a new Chapter 18 near the end of Book 3, which tied up the story arcs for a couple of important secondary characters, and a couple of scenes that I rewrote elsewhere in the story, to clarify certain characters' motivations 
and fix inconsistencies in their personalities. All in all, I've added about 7,000 words to the manuscript over the month of June. Now the story goes off to my narrators, while I turn my attention to editing the Natasha prequel story, Learning the Ropes. If you'd like to share your thoughts about the show, send your feedback in text or audio to metamorecityfeedback at gmail.com. To leave a voicemail, dial area code 641-715-3900, then enter extension 255082, followed by the pound sign. My Facebook is facebook.com slash author Chris Lester. The fan group is fans of Metamore City on Facebook, and our Discord server is Metamore City. I'm there pretty often, so come say hi. If you like this show, please consider leaving a review at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or Podchaser.com. It really helps people find the show. That's all for this week. I'll be back next time with more fresh new fiction. Until then, keep it on the bright side. This is Chris Lester, signing out. The contents of this podcast are copyright 2021 by Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. The show is released under a Creative Commons, Attribution, Non-Commercial, No Derivatives license. So don't change it, don't sell it, but feel free to share it all you like. For more information about this license, please visit creativecommons.org.